Um, we've, we've started in January and we anticipate finishing somewhere in November, uh, just digging into the, 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 the depths of God's Word in this book. And it was very good timing, I think, in God's timing that uh, Easter came just as we came to chapter 3, which speaks of uh, the work of the cross and the centrality of the cross to the Gospel. And uh, it's because of what Jesus did at the cross that everything that Paul writes about in this whole book uh, has any foundation or makes any sense. One of the, the, the big reasons that Paul is writing to the Romans is because in the Roman church there were both Jews and Gentiles and they didn't always see eye to eye and occasionally there would be frictions and that was the big issue that the early church was wrestling with. Uh, What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah not just for the Jews but for all nations? And uh, just as the issue of race and ethnicity was an issue then, it, it always has been uh, throughout human history. It's still an uh, issue for us here today in the 21st century. We have the, uh, the issues between Indigenous Australians and white Europeans and the, uh, the hurt of the past and people are working to try and bring about reconciliation. Um, and obviously it's an issue for us here in this church uh, where we have a mixture of people, different ethnicities, different backgrounds uh, and living in a multicultural Australia where we're trying to work out what does it mean to have people from all these different nations, all these different cultures living together, how can we be uh, unified and living in harmony with one another. So that's, uh, that's what Paul is trying to bring out to the, the Romans and the cross of Christ is the key to that. Now, according to the history book, Christianity began around the middle of the first century AD and it's a religion started by Jesus. Just search Christianity on Wikipedia, that's what you'll be told. Um, Wikipedia says Christianity began as a second temple Judaic sect which eventually became recognised as a religion in its own right. And that's the way the the Romans initially viewed the Christians. They saw them just as a subset of the Jews. Then over time, the Jews began to say, no, they're not with us. And a separation began and eventually the Roman Empire recognised Christianity as, as its own religion. But the way the history books see it, is that uh, the history of humanity has been the history of a whole, all kinds of different religions and Judaism was one of those religions. Jesus came along and he, he caused a, a, a splinter group to break away from Judaism and eventually today now we have these two religions of Judaism, Christianity and then all the other world's religions, some of which have ceased and some of which are still around with us. But the Bible tells us quite a different story to the history books. And this is the story that Paul begins to unfold as he turns to look at 
Abraham. So while the, the world talks about the history of religion, the Bible talks about the history of faith. Throughout humanity, throughout our history, there have really only been two streams. The stream of faith, those who lived with trust and hope in God, who depended upon him to justify them, and the stream of faithlessness, those who choose not to trust or hope in God, those who choose instead to depend on their own righteousness to justify themselves. We see that streams begin right at the very beginning of the Bible with Cain and Abel. Abel had faith, he trusted God, Cain didn't and there was this split straight away between the two. So from day one, faith has been the only way through which a person might be brought into and remain in a right relationship with God. Faith is both the right expression of the heart of a creature who knows they depend on their creator for every breath, every heartbeat. But it's also the right expression of the heart of a sinner who knows that they depend on their redeemer for forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. So in reality, that's the true story. There was this thing called Judaism, which the true Jews were those who lived by faith, just like their forefather Abraham. Jesus came and he was, he was the true Jew. He affirmed the true faith that had been there right from the very beginning that was there in, in Moses and the law and the prophets. And uh, any Jew who rejected Jesus as their Messiah, who didn't put their faith in the Messiah, they were the ones who left, who splintered away and joined that stream of faithlessness. Now the unpacking of what Jesus accomplished at the cross in chapter 3 of Romans shows this clearly. It's about God's work, not our work. Jesus is put forth as the redemption payment. The slave is hopeless and helpless. They can do nothing to set themselves free. Jesus comes, makes the payment to set them free. He takes the wrath of God in our place, the wrath that we cannot bear, we cannot deal with ourselves. And he shows God to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And all of that removes from us uh, any claim uh, that there's anything we've done. A connection there, maybe. All of that says, well then, none of us can vote. There's nothing we can say, nothing we can look at in ourselves to say, God has done this for me because of something I've done or something that's good in me. And so in verses 29 to 30 of chapter 3, we see that this fact that the cross was God's action to save us, 
that breaks down any barrier or distinction between people based on race, especially in their context the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. So is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Now that statement would have been scandalous to any non-Christian Jew. In their eyes, that is denying everything that has been said in the past about Israel being God's unique, chosen, distinct people, separated from all the nations, his treasured possession. To say that, God is not just your God, he's the God of all people, would have been a scandal. Sure, Yahweh has said to them, I am your God and you are my people. So how can Paul now claim that God is not exclusively the God of the Jews? Uh, We saw earlier a few weeks ago that despite the fact that many people see Christianity as narrow and exclusive because we say Jesus is the only way to come to the Father. In actual fact, it is incredibly inclusive, more so than any other religion or any other uh, philosophy. Because it's not restricted to anyone based on ethnicity or nationality or gender or age or social status or personal moral level or personal spirituality. Any division that we might draw between people and say because you are not this or you are not that God cannot be your God is a false distinction. In fact it's an attempt to undermine what God has done for all people in Jesus Christ. Now the world tries to break down these barriers between people and races and cultures by bringing everything down to the lowest common denominator. Well, underneath we're all humans. That's all, all in the end the world can say. And it comes down to uh, what we now call today human rights. Uh, just recently uh, in the United States uh, there's been a celebration of the 50th anniversary of get this right, Martin Luther King's death. So not really a how do you celebrate someone's death 50 years ago? But it's a commemoration of that and a reminder of the fact that this, uh, this struggle is still going on in that nation between African Americans and European um, background Americans. And even though Martin Luther King did many great things to break down those barriers, those barriers still exist and people still feel divided. And we, we try and solve it by saying it's about human rights. Let's stand up for human rights. In the end, it's simply this fact that we are all human beings with the right to freedom, the right to dignity and the right to the pursuit of happiness. 
But ironically, by rejecting the truth that human beings are made in the image of God, the world has no basis for claiming those rights. If we're just nothing in the end but another species of animal that's had the good fortune to progress further than all the other species on this planet, then really there's no such thing as human rights. How can you say we have the right to dignity if we're in the end just an accident? It's no coincidence that in parts of the world where the sense of human rights are the strongest are the parts where Christianity has had the most influence. It's been the Christian faith with its doctrine of human beings made in the image of God that has instilled in our thinking the idea of the intrinsic worth of human life. But now our culture today wants to maintain that integrity, that sense of dignity and worth of the human being, but we don't want to believe in the God who actually gives it value. So if we look into ourselves and to ourselves to try and find a way to bring different people together in unity, we'll always fail. Because there'll always be something that I see about myself, my character, my actions, my moral values, my family, my ethnicity, whatever it is, there'll be something I'll see in myself that I'll want to say, this makes me superior to that other person. That makes me more worthy of God's approval than what I see in you. Sinful human pride will never be satisfied unless we're focusing on our own glory. And the only way I can see myself as glorious is by pushing other people down below me. No, the only way that human beings can be brought together in unity, in a way that there's no distinction of status between them, is through what God does in Jesus. Because it's faith in Jesus Christ that breaks down every single barrier or feeling of superiority or inequality. So Paul, in chapter 4, turns to Abraham to make the point that God is the God not just of the Jews but the God of all people, of the Gentiles. Abraham is the father of the Jews Every Jew looks to him as their father. Every Jew was a son or a daughter of Abraham and an heir of the promise. Since they were members of this great nation that God had promised would come from Abraham and be blessed. So the way that God relates to Abraham is the way he relates to Abraham's children. The things that God called Abraham to are the things that he calls Abraham's children to. So Abraham was a model, a model to every Jew of what it meant to walk before God and be blameless. 
Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face and said to him, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Do you notice there something that the Jews had missed in their saying, God is our God alone and exclusively. We are his people alone and exclusively. God says to Abraham, You shall be the father of a multitude of nations, not just this one nation that will come from you. Right from the beginning, right from Abraham's time, it was clear that the promise wasn't just for Jews, but for the nations. So, Paul says, let's look to Abraham to see if what I'm saying about faith is true or not. Because if we find that Abraham agrees with what I've said, then the Gospel is true. So firstly, in verse 3, we see that God's righteousness came to Abraham not because of what he did, but because of faith. I thought I had that up there, but I don't. If you have a Bible with you, um, look that up. Verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The Hebrew word for believe is aman and it's from the Hebrew word aman that we get our English word amen. It's it's the word that is used when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, in the Greek it is, amen, amen, I say to you. It's like Jesus is saying, if you don't believe anything else, believe this, believe me, I am telling you something that is absolutely reliable and trustworthy that you can believe. So Abraham heard God's promise and he said in response, amen. And that was the point at which he was assured of God's favour upon him. Now it's important for us to see that this isn't Abraham making the first move and God responding to meet him along the way. That's how we can tend to see faith from our human perspective. As if we take the initiative to become interested in finding out that if, if God is real and what he's like and then God who's been waiting around in heaven for us to finally look up and notice him gives us a wave and says, well done, I'm glad you've decided to try and find me. No, Abraham's faith, his amen, was his response to God coming and finding him. God was seeking him out and God found him and 
he gave his promises to him and to his descendants to give them a destiny. All the activity was God's. Abraham simply saw and heard and said, Yes, Amen. God's choice of Abraham wasn't because of his godliness. In fact, quite the opposite. Abraham came from a long line of idolaters. His family origins were in Babel, the great city where humanity had defied God and said, let's make a name for ourselves and not obey God's command to fill the earth. The only difference between Abraham and all of his contemporaries was God's gracious choice of him to be the man through whom blessing would come to all the nations. So in verse 5, what was it that Abraham ultimately believed about God? What was it that he said Amen to? Verse 5 of chapter 4, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now Paul's really digging himself into a hole here in the eyes of the Jews. Several times in the Old Testament, God had unequivocally said, I will by no means clear the guilty. This is God revealing himself to Moses in the time of the Exodus. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And we, we like to stop there, don't we? Because that makes God to be nice in our eyes. But he goes on and says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the the children and their children for the sins of the parents for the third and fourth generation. And that sentiment is echoed a number of times in Exodus, in Numbers and in the prophets. God says, I will not clear the guilty. I will not justify the ungodly, is another way of translating it. So how could this be? that the God of perfect justice who will always punish the guilty is now said to justify the guilty, the ungodly. From the angle of works, of our own performance, that could never be the case. But from the angle of grace, that's manifested in the cross. As we saw in chapter 3, even the most ungodly person can know God's justifying righteousness through Jesus. That's what Abraham believed. Who is this God who has tucked me, an idolater, out of Babel and said, I'm going to bless the whole world through you? Who am I that he should choose me? This God must be the kind of God who justifies the ungodly. Secondly, verses 9 to 12, we see that at the time of Abraham's justification, being made right with God, he was actually no different to any of the Gentiles 
that the Jews were keen to exclude. The thing that distinguished a Jew from a Gentile at the time, especially at the time of Jesus and the first century, the thing that distinguished them was circumcision. This was the permanent sign of the covenant that every Jewish man carried on his own body. It was permanent, irreversible. So important was this sign that at the time of Jesus and Paul's time, uh, the Jews were known as the circumcision. That's the term they used of themselves to distinguish themselves from the Jews, sorry, the Gentiles that they wanted to exclude. But there were at least 13 years between when Abraham believed God, as we saw in Genesis 15, and when God commanded Abraham and his whole family and household to be circumcised. What does that mean? That means Abraham, the father of the Jews, was really a Gentile who was justified by grace through faith. Clearly circumcision wasn't the basis of his right standing before God. It was merely an external sign of all that God had done for him. Any Jew, if they consider themselves to be a true Jew, must follow Abraham's example. Not trusting in themselves or their works, but trusting in the God who justifies. But also any Gentile, us, that's us, is now called to follow Abraham's example in the same way, to put our faith in him who justifies the ungodly. You may be aware of the, uh, the recent scandal in the Victorian Parliament uh, it happened over the Easter weekend. Uh, two Liberal MPs asked for leave of absence so that they could go to church and celebrate Good Friday. Parliament was sitting on Good Friday and uh, there was a bill that had been introduced for something about emergency services and there was going to be a vote on Good Friday about this bill that the Labor government had introduced. So Labor as was is the normal practice, said, OK, because two of your MPs will be away, we will exclude two of our MPs, so there will still be a fair and balanced vote over this bill. But then at the last minute, these two Liberal MPs came back into the House and the bill introduced by Labor was overturned and there was a big outcry. Uh, there were cries of hypocrisy and manipulation one of the, the Labor MPs' response to what happened betrays a common misconception about Christianity. Here's what he said. He said, if they are truly good Christians, the only place waiting for them is hell. I think what he's saying is that if these men, these two men who said, we don't want to come to Parliament, but then they turned up, if they really believe the tenets of their faith, then they must realise that what they did 
has overturned any good that they may have done that would have earned them a place in heaven. So now because of this terrible thing they've done, they now deserve to go to hell. I think as I speak to many people who maybe the only connection they've had with Christianity is maybe they went to a church school or they've seen a few things on TV. That's the general assumption. That's what we as Christians believe. That Christianity is about trying to do good so that you can earn heaven. But watch out, because if you do too many bad things, you might end up in hell. That's the complete opposite of what we are seeing here in Romans. Not only are my good works unable to earn salvation, but bad works are unable to overturn salvation. Because in Jesus, it's not the works that make the difference, for good or for bad. Grace is a gift. It is given undeserved, not based on works, and it's received by faith. We have a great responsibility as God's people to ensure that we communicate grace, not law. If our life and speech and witnessing to Jesus are coming from a framework of law, then we'll look like just any other religion that says you have to fix yourselves up before you can be acceptable to God. People will look at us and say, so why do I need Jesus? I can do a good job of being good on my own. But if our lives and our speech and our witnessing come from a framework of grace, shaped by the message of the cross, people will say, just like these Christians, I need Jesus because just like these Christians I can't be good on my own. I need Jesus to save me. That's what Abraham believed. Jesus said to the Jews Abraham saw my day and was glad. Abraham, even though he wouldn't have been able to articulate it the way we can, it was Abraham, Abraham looked forward And he actually saw Jesus. He saw that because of God, what God has done and what God will do, that is my only hope, my only basis for saying I know this God who justifies the ungodly.